Welcome to the Whitmer Cast, a podcast by the John Whitmer Historical Association. We bring you essays, interviews, panel discussions, and broadcasts related to Mormon history and restoration studies. My name is Jason Smith, and I'm a student at Chicago Theological Seminary, and I'll be your host for today's episode. And we have a great episode lined up. I'll be talking with someone with whom you're probably already familiar, David J. Howlett. David is a visiting assistant professor of religion at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, and is the author of numerous journal articles, as well as the author of Kirtland Temple, the biography of a shared Mormon sacred space, and co-author with John Charles Duffy of Mormonism, the Basics. David is also the president-elect of the Mormon History Association. Today, I'm going to be talking with David about two of his recent projects. First, we'll be talking about his article in the Journal of Mormon History called The the RLDS Church, Global Denominations, and Globalization, Why the Study of Denominations Still Matters. Second, we'll be talking about his entry on Community of Christ in the World Religions and Spirituality Project website. If you'd like to join JWHA or visit our entire backlog of episodes and JWHA journals, go to jwha.info. With that out of the way, let's get started. Many of our listeners will be familiar already with your academic work and have followed you for several years. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I live with my spouse and daughter in East Hampton, Massachusetts, which is right next door to Northampton. So early New England Puritans were not that creative with naming. (laughs) And um, I teach at Smith College. I have for the past four years, and I've overall, I think I've been teaching for about 12 years post-PhD now. That's a little bit of my current professional background. I grew up in Independence, Missouri. If folks know what the Restoration Branches movement uh, is and was, I basically grew up in that. Um, So I was baptized at age eight in an RLDS branch. My my parents stopped attending thereafter. Uh, That would have been 86. Um, So that was around the time when there was a split within the RLDS church over women's ordination, but it was a broader kind of conservative liberal split roiling many churches at the time. Southern Baptist Convention, for instance, is a good example of a church who went to the right on issues of women's ordination and culture issues. And the RLDS church is a good example of a church that went to the left. And when both cases, you have then people falling out of both churches for depending on who won, if you will. And so my parents went with the restorationists in the RLDS case. So I grew up in that movement. And then as a young adult, um, came back to the community of Christ and uh, renewed my membership in it. And then at age 31, as I was completing a PhD, I was then ordained as an elder in community of Christ. Um, so I was a member for about six years or so before before being called to the priesthood. That's a little bit about my background uh, as I got in terms of in community of Christ. And if I want to do a kind of LDS thing, I'll, I'll claim a heritage and lineage. And the heritage and lineage thing is that I am an eighth generation member in the sense of community Christ, which my earliest ancestors can go all the way back to Vermont. And they then went to Western New York and then Ohio and then Missouri and Illinois. And then they went to Iowa and they stopped, which is a very old RLDS story. And in a very RLDS fashion, I had no idea I had this heritage till I was 30 years old, and I'm a historian. So it's like, does ancestry matter that much in the community Christ tradition? 
not really. <laughs> so even I didn't know that story. I had to really actually search it out and find it. But that's a little bit about my uh, like direct heritage in some ways in community of Christ. But I, I I bring that out sometimes when I have conversations with LDS folks just to say like, yeah, yeah, yeah. My family was also in Nauvoo. They were. <laughs> so, uh, but they're, they're, they weren't necessarily leaders. They make a, a very minor footnote in uh, early Mormon history. So like my earliest ancestor shows up in the Nauvoo High Council Minutes. I love this story. He shows up in the Nauvoo High Council Minutes because apparently he is practicing folk magic. And he's trying to cure his neighbors uh, of witchcraft. And basically, they bring him in front of the Navajo High Council and tell him to stop doing it. <laughs> because he's basically accusing his neighbors of being witches and wizards. That's <laughs> how it's stated. And they say, stop it. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm trying to help them. I'm trying to help them. <laughs> and, they say, and so he's convicted and told to stop doing it. So he, he's, uh, quote, uh, burning boards, which I guess some is folk magic. Uh, and he's he's practicing his folk magic. That's a really, really interesting example of how, you know, early Vermont, and Joseph Smith's family, others are practicing folk magic, of course. And here my ancestor is still doing it in Nauvoo. And then it's fallen out of fashion by Nauvoo. And they're like, stop it. <laughs> That's my ancestor. <laughs> That's great. In, in your article, um, you make a case for viewing the community of Christ formerly the RLDS Church, as a global denomination. Can you briefly describe your reasoning for this? Yeah, so I'm trying to make an argument, first of all, that denominations are important conduits for understanding other kinds of forces, which is kind of a, a theme that I kind of go to over and over again, where I'm trying to talk about the relevancy of denominations, a, a topic which most people in American church history or American religious history don't really care about anymore. And in the 70s, it was all the rage. But now it's like few people care, but I'm trying to still make the argument that these are important places of belonging, even if they are lessened in their importance today, as like denominational affiliation is, uh, you know, the, the importance of it is certainly at a low point. It wasn't in the past, though. So it's kind of myopic to think that this is unimportant if we study the past. So, and I'm making a case in this article that if we want to understand how Christianity um, experiences globalization, we need to look at how it experiences it through denominations. And so that's the big picture question, because affiliation to particular organizations matters to people, even in the recent past. So it's only in the last 20 years that it doesn't matter that much anymore. I think we have to be not so presentist in how we think about the history of Christianities in, in the world. So what I'm arguing is that in the post-World War II era, there is an intensification of connections, both how people imagine the world and how people experience the world with more distant places. And that's kind of the as one way of thinking about uh, globalization. So you can think about globalization as a time period, the 1970s to the present, you can think of it as a cultural process of like greater and greater interconnections. You can think of it as an economic process in which neoliberalism becomes a dominant force in, in organizing uh, the world where we go from a, a society with a market to a market society. That's the essence of neoliberalization and globalization. And it's about a certain kinds of political and cultural processes like the standardization of processes across the world. 
if you think about something as simple as like diplomatic processes, they are relatively standardized across the world. That's globalization. If you think about economic processes, they become standardized. Capitalism demands that. Um, you can't have capitalism without a lot of standardization and coordination. And all of this brings a certain new form of people's understanding of themselves and their place in the world and even their experience of themselves. And so I'm trying to understand not just internationalization, which I think is an earlier era in terms of what Christians experience, but globalization, which is, I think, of more of a 60s, 70s and thereafter experience. And I do that by looking at how it is experienced in denominations. Um, and I think about in this article, what are kind of the markers, what I'm calling a global denomination. Um, and so that's that's part of what I'm I'm trying to do there and saying that it's not just that RLDS or I use LDS also in there as in, in passing, I wave my hand to it, are not simply like reflecting these trends, they're makers of these trends. And that's an argument staked on the idea that people make the world together in relation to each other, which is a very simple argument, but I, I'm trying to say that we aren't just reflecting things, we're, we are actively engaged in doing the things too. So it may, that's maybe a subtle difference, but I'm trying to say that, no, when we study things like the RLDS church, we are also studying things like globalization and understanding how globalization works. Um, so I, I said a lot, but that's that's a that's that's kind of the big picture premise of the article. You mentioned in the article some of the ways that you kind of wave high to the LDS in your article. Can you kind of elaborate on the differences between the RLDS and the LDS as as global denominations and, and how they manifest that a little differently? So all global denominations, and we can think about LDS or RLDS, or uh, you can think about United Methodists or the Episcopal Church, or you can think of like a lot of American denominations, name any of them. We often think of the 50s, 60s, and 70s as a time of decolonization, which it is. But decolonization does not mean that the linkages between American churches and churches outside the United States uh, lessen. They actually increase and intensify, even as the same force of decolonization, which results in certain kinds of political independence and independence even of some churches and denominations happens at the same time. Nonetheless, the bigger trend for American churches as a whole is not decreased, but increased connections. So both RLDS and LDS reflect that. Basically, American-based churches after World War II, RLDS and LDS, they have global reach before World War II, but it is greatly intensified post-World War II. That's partly a story of the Cold War, of like what Matthew Bolton calls militarized mission, which is his way of saying that it's through American GIs and sailors and diplomats and NGO workers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who are abroad who help in the expansion of both the LDS church and the RLDS church. But then um, you have a kind of transformation of that as it goes beyond just a kind of militarized mission or just a, a church of GIs in some place to where it becomes a church with all kinds of groups that are indigenous to the place uh, also being part of it, not simply migrants like a, a GI or a sailor. That's not answering your question of how they're different, but it gets to an idea that suddenly these churches have to deal with issues of commensurability, 
or how do you understand difference? And so the big difference between the understandings of difference in the LDS and RLDS comes through two strategies. One strategy, one that if your visitors, if your listeners are familiar with the LDS church is talked about as correlation. Correlation is a program which starts, it's earlier than the 50s, but intensifies in the 50s and 60s, by which it is an intentional process to standardize the practices of the LDS church across the world, creating a so-called gospel culture across the world that will be the same or standard. That is one strategy that like McDonald's might use to globalize, if you will. It's it's why one theorist, George Ritzer, thinks about globalization as McDonaldization, a certain form of standardization across the world. The LDS Church exemplifies that's kind of in their missionary work and how they build churches. There's a, a premium on standardization to an extent uh, that goes beyond what most churches do, honestly. The RLDS Church at least puts an ideological premium on indigenization, and that is their word for it. Um, so it's not just a term I'm using as a scholar to describe it, but you see very clearly in the 1960s, Charles Neff and others using contemporary Protestant uh, missional notions at the time of thinking about creating a um, localized churches that will be indigenous, that will have indigenous leadership, that will eventually be self-funded, that will eventually have their will allow the gospel to grow up in its own way. This is echoing earlier indigenization ideas from the 1920s by mainline Protestants who are becoming critical of earlier Protestant mission models. And they're drawing on actually 19th century models for mission that aren't really implemented until the 1920s. Um, but there's a lineage that goes back to that, that then mixes with notions of cultural relativism which decenters American uh, like exceptionalism. Those sound like you know twenty dollar words, but they they all mean they all are really important. American exceptionalism is a big thing about America, the best. <laughs> and so relativization says, well, America is one place among many places. It might even be a good place, but there's lots of good places. And so American understandings of the gospel don't hold a monopoly on the gospel. And so. Charles Neff and others are making this argument, especially our earliest missionaries in Asia. Uh, many of them beyond Charles Neff are also making that argument as they experience cultures that are vastly different than their own. And they realize that the RLDS message, which had been cultivated in a primarily Protestant American culture, makes no sense to someone in the highlands of India or in Japan. It has to have a larger American Protestant evangelical even culture to press back against to make its claims make sense. So without that ambient light, what? how do you talk to people um, in Japan or the islands of India? So out of that experience, there comes a kind of reorientation of our LDS. That's really different than the LDS standardization. It results in much, much more diverse and RLDS kinds of uh, missions, and it does lead to immediately much more control by indigenous leaders over local affairs, whereas LDS, this kind of strategy for commensurability, if you will, uh, is about creating an indigenous community, but having it led by North Americans 
and enforcing the rules about doing things right until the people get it. So that's that's a really different strategy than the RLDS strategy. Both are globalizing strategies. One is about, another $20 word is globalization, the global and the local coming together. So it's the globalization, allowing the global to become in, infused with the local and it becomes different in every locale. The other is more of a McDonaldization, honestly, uh, in the George Richards model for it. So th- those are competing theories for globalization of what's more dominant in terms of we talk about globalization. Is it standardization or is it localization? And at least in the case of the RLDS and the LDS, we see both illustrated uh, to different extents. Both groups have some standardization, just what weight they put on it. Both groups have some extent of localization, just what weight in the end is placed on that localization too. That's one way of thinking about, well, this is illustrating what we think about as globalization as a process. Okay. So you studied uh, India and, and Philippines quite a bit. Can you think of some examples of this indigenous model and how you've seen it work effectively and and maybe a couple of cases that you can mention? Yeah. So one of the things that happens, I think, in the RLDS church that leads to initially a great deal of success in the sense of affiliation is what I'm calling denominational rebranding, where, so for instance, in the Philippines, Chuck Neff is integral to both the Philippines and India. He's the apostle in charge of Asia for the decade of the 60s. He is advocating for indigenization, and he kind of allows more or less both people in both places to have indigenous leaders and allows them to shape the church as they see fit. It means in the Philippines that the converts are primarily from a very small Adventist church, uh, the Church of God Seventh Day. And it is based in the United States. At the time that they're evangelizing the, these folks in the 60s, they, the Church of God Seventh Day claims their, their headquarters is in Jerusalem, which they have a few people there. <laughs> so they're like, no. So it's a very particular kind of Adventist. It's not even the Seventh Day Adventists. They're a schism from a schism from a schism. They go back earlier, way, way earlier. They're very small. But this group has about 350 members in the Philippines. And their overseer for the Philippines affiliates with the RLDS church, as does about six of the ministers or so. Four, yeah, four of the ministers, I'm sorry, four of the ministers. And with them, they bring some of their congregation members. And they're related to big families and two big families. But for the first few decades of the RLDS church's experience in the Philippines, much of the Filipino church is a continuation of the earlier Church of God Seventh Day. So they have like very distinctive Adventist things like, you know, pork is a really, really popular food product. It's like in vegetables. <laughs> I mean, like if you eat vegetables, it's often like cooked with something with pork uh, in the Philippines. And these folks will not eat pork. So uh, so there's certain kind of Adventist things they will do. Like they won't eat blood sausage. They won't eat. There's there's very specific Adventist dietary things that that they continue um, which really have nothing to do with the word of wisdom. <laughs> so that doesn't matter. It's the reading of the Bible through an Adventist, older Adventist lens that matters. Uh, the way priesthood functions, it's much more like Adventist pastors in the past. These, um, so that really continues on in that generation. It doesn't change really to the second generation. That's a gradual process where today the Filipino community Christ Church looks a lot more like the North American community Christ Church 
but it's also different. It looks, it is, I'd say today, positioned as a mainline Protestant-like church in the Philippines with leaders that are very progressive and members that are progressive and conservative. That's all of that. And most people are all related to each other. So it's a it's a really a church of families, too, and family and kinship systems. And still small. Uh, we're talking about 11 congregations. But that's one way we think about, like, localization happens. In India, the story is, if that's a complicated story, and it, it gets way more complicated, actually, even that in the Philippines. But in India, it's uh, the story of primarily the most members in India come out of a state in India called, uh, at the time, it's called Orissa. It's now called Odisha. They're really the same thing. Ds and Rs and Oriya are about the, about the same. Uh, and S and SH is about the same. So it's, it's about the same. There's a, even It's spelled differently now. But in the highlands of Odisha, you have a good number of tribal folks. And scheduled tribes are a particular government designation in India that classifies people. You have a, a tribal identification card, for instance. And there's a great deal of controversy of what tribal means in India. Like, it doesn't mean indigenous. So if it means indigenous, that implies a certain kind of like notion that other Hindus, for instance, aren't necessarily indigenous. And so that, that you can see how fraught that argument can be politically. But they are specifically classified by the government as tribal folks. The folks become RLDS and community Christ later on. And they are traditionally at they're outside of the caste system. So the caste system, while outlawed by law in India, is still kind of a way of that organizes social life too, especially, especially in the villages. And 70% of folks in India live in villages. So that's still a, a huge number of people. And in as outside the caste system, they're on the bottom. So the other folks who are on the bottom are Dalits. Dalits are the so-called untouchables. Tribal folks and Dalits are make up the Christian population of India. Not all Dalits are Christian, not all tribal folks are Christian, but almost all <laughs> Christians are Dalits and tribal folks, a vast majority of them. Um, what happens is, is that tribal folks in these remote, they are remote regions, of Odisha, these are forest regions, they're small villages. Those folks begin affiliating with the RLDS church by missionary work that happens through Baptist ministers who affiliate with the RLDS church in 1965. And those folks, one of them is a guy, G.S. Chala, who's from a Sikh background, Christian convert, becomes Baptist. He's a, I would describe him as a religious entrepreneur. And I describe him that way because he's writing to a lot of groups to get financial support um, for his mission. And some of them are Baptists. Some of them are like groups in Colorado that are like fundamentalist Christian independent folks that do missions. He's going for anyone that will actually support him financially to do, do his thing. Uh, this is not an uncommon thing, too. I think there's lots of entrepreneurial agents this time looking for affiliation with Western churches. Uh, and I think we have to be extraordinarily careful with the judgment we put on that because people are looking for resources to have a, a life in which they can flourish. <laughs> and they're like, I am too, right? <laughs> so yeah. for resources in life to make my, my family flourish. Um, so I think we have to be really careful with the kinds of like unexamined judgments <laughs> that we might have about that. So 
Uh, Chala is involved in uh, then doing missions to Sora folks, Sora, uh, scheduled tribe, and later on Kui folks, so another scheduled tribe, in the hills of Ganjam district, then Ganjam district, Odisha. Districts have changed over time. And it's uh, so, and he is working with a Sora Baptist minister, Junius Raika, who kind of becomes an independent Baptist as well. The Baptists who are in Odisha at the time are Canadian Baptists and English Baptists. Most, most of them are Canadian Baptists. But by the 60s and 70s, most Euro-American missionaries are leaving India because of changes in laws. And so whether or not they embrace an idea of indigenization, it's happening, where churches are being turned over to indigenous leaders. Um, we come into India as Community Christ or RLDS at that time when this is all happening on the ground. And because the RLDS church has embraced the notion of indigenization already, it relies almost exclusively on Indian-born ministers who are already part of other churches who affiliate with the RLDS church to then evangelize other places. And that's what happens. And the folks they evangelized in the Sora Hills are basically, they're their own religion. I call Sora religion its own thing. Uh, you could call it animism, but that oversimplifies it. It's like only talking about monotheism. And we want to actually talk about, you know, Jews and Christians and Muslims. We don't just want to talk about monotheists, right? So I think, I, but if it, if it gives you a little bit of an idea of what they're doing, that it, it's helpful, but Sora religion is its own thing. And so they begin establishing Christian congregations in Sora villages first, and Sora then ministers, who are basically lay ministers, it's a Baptist, Canadian Baptist model, will go out and evangelize village after village after village as traveling lay teachers. And that creates within about 20 years, a really dynamic and growing network of Sora churches in the region. And most of the Sora churches today have actually reaffiliated as of 2019, with the Orissa Baptist churches, as of differences with Community Christ in terms of how to organize their districts and who gets to be leaders. It's basically a church that lasted for 50 years in the region and now is a kind of skeleton of what it once was, but it's it still does exist. There still are Sora congregations that are Community Christ. There's a very different dynamic to say that's happening among Sora folks because the Philippines is a great case study because it's primarily Christian. It is the most Christian country in, in Asia. Uh, so we're talking about 90%. Then 80% are Catholic. That in comparison to India, 2% are Christian. And that's probably about what most of Asia beyond <laughs> Philippines is like in terms of Christian affiliation. Um, Japan, minuscule, right? Um, 1%. Even if, it's, even if there are very, very old Christian communities in all these places, it's still very small Christian communities in Asia. Uh, overall. So they are very different places and very different kinds of like case studies for thinking about why groups affiliate and how they continue on in terms of affiliation. To sum it all up though, why it works for the RLDS is the amount of autonomy and freedom at first that in both places local ministers are given. And they don't simply reflect an idealized Filipino Christianity, because there is no such thing as that, there's always particular forms of Filipino Christianity. They actually reflect already pre-existing kinds of like localizations of European Christianities, Canadian Baptists, that are Sora, that are, have now localized it in their particular ways. 
Filipinos who are Adventists who have localized in their own ways. So there's a kind of like um, indigenization imaginary, which is a little bit naive about, you know, it's just locally, it's all indigenous. It's like, well, no, it's always a combination of things. It's already a combination of things um, in India, in uh, the Philippines. And that's that's just the way Christianity always works as a as a kind of combination of many different things. So you you mentioned the the religious entrepreneurism. Yeah, I'm I'm curious because I know that uh, talking to to representatives of different Latter Day Saint groups, you know that that are smaller perhaps than the Community of Christ. Thinking about the uh, Church of Jesus Christ in Monongahela, Pennsylvania the Church of Christ with the Elijah message. There's several churches that that mention congregations in in the Philippines and India. And I've I've heard sometimes it sounds like they may be talking about the same groups of people sometimes. Yeah. Is that something that you've run into? Yes, there are there is evidence, for instance, that Chala, GS Chala, who I talked about, was receiving money from both the RLDS church as an employee and this little tiny Colorado group that's a, basically a Protestant fundamentalist church at the same time. And he was certainly writing to anyone who would listen. And he was certainly shaping his message to his audience. And that way he was an entrepreneur. He was like, he was advertising and finding the consumer, <laughs> if you will, who would buy his product, which he was representing it as. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think it's inaccurate to represent him as an entrepreneur. I think he's actually, he does it. He does that uh, a lot. And I guess it's for him, it's like, well, I, I have this project I want to do with my life. I have this project I want to do that's going to help my family. I believe in it. I've got to get supporters. So how do I do that? I need to align myself with multiple allies and patrons. So it's a patronage system. And we think a patronage is something that's bad until we realize we receive paychecks. <laughs> we realize, well, do we have patrons? Maybe we do. <laughs> so um, I... I so I'm, a, I'm a very cautious about like the kinds of moral condemnation that we sometimes have with the idea of patronage. And there's sometimes folks looking for patrons. And I think in this case, they're looking for patrons. In the Philippines, there are some folks that are also being funded by multiple groups. I, I do know a, a Filipino uh, priest member now passed away who was definitely in the 60s receiving support and writing it for a newsletter from a small Adventist group, as well as Community of Christ. And so that went on for a while with some folks in the Philippines. I think it became less and less so over time. Um, but I think initially that's very true. And that phenomenon is not unusual. It's not unique to Restoration Tradition churches that maybe experience it, but don't realize it's happening. And sometimes they know it's happening and don't care. <laughs> They're like, well, that's fine. Um, and they, but they still want to report to their members, we in the United States, we have all these groups. It happens with all kinds of groups that the more you look at kinds of global Christianity uh, and groups that are affiliated with multiple groups in primarily Europe and North America, the reason why this is because I, there's a very simple reason. The North American part of Christianity is the richest part of Christianity in the world, but the numerical center for Christianity is not North America. So there is a relationship between North American Christianity, American churches, and global Christianity. And so folks looking for patrons know where to look. And so that's what that's what's happening. And again, we can see it as 
patronage and think there's abuse in that. But we have to think about what we think about as ethical abuse. Like, is it ethically wrong for someone to seek out resources when they don't have resources? <laughs> so I'm like, or can you think this is redistribution of wealth through other means that governments aren't doing it, but this is happening through these other channels? There's lots of models for thinking about it. You can think about neo-colonialism, but I think that's a very complicated thing until we have a complex model of colonialism itself. <laughs> so, so I think that there's a lot of things happening on the ground where people are getting sources for funding from North American sources, and then they do their own project on the ground. And then they shape their reports uh, to the funders in ways that meet their funders' needs, much like any group does that's a nonprofit. <laughs> that's, it has to address patrons and funders that somehow then also caters to the funders' understandings of what this project is about while they pursue their own projects as well. And that's kind of how I think about it. So it sounds very transactional, but I that's kind of what I've seen. And I don't try to give that much moral judgment, knowing about vast inequities of power that are at play too, uh, in terms of global north, global south. Yeah. So you you mentioned what's happening on the ground. I, I'm curious as to when the when these these uh, these folks are reaching out to different churches and denominations in the North America and, and Europe. Are they using these restoration distinctives, the Book of Mormon uh, inspired version, things like that, in their ministry on the ground? Oh, that's a complicated question. I can I can show in the 1960s. G.S. Chawla is trying to be as RLDS as possible in his letters to, to RLDS apostles and evangelists, so, so the presiding evangelist, or the presiding patriarch at the time he's writing to him, or other folks. And he definitely has RLDS tracks, and he's trying to make himself as restoration as possible, talking about Joseph Smith and about the Book of Mormon. I mean, he's he's littering his, his, his letters with references. And then you can see, when he's writing to the Colorado church, which is fundamentalist Protestant, of course, none of that's present. <laughs> I mean, so so yes, th there is a kind of like, um, if you think of these as like uh, letters to funders, if you're an NGO, these are tailored letters, personalized letters, if you will. There's definitely no use of the Book of Mormon on the ground in India at all. Until, and I think th the most you would have would be like today, you would have some community Christ folks who are primarily leaders, sometimes some laity in certain congregations, they know about it, but they also know that they're not required to use it and they don't. So, and that's a certain kind of freedom which they've had from the very beginning. So I have seen then though these same people, some of them, when there are internal leadership disputes in certain places in India, they have allied themselves with, for instance, with folks in the restoration branches movement in all its forms. And there's there's an alphabet soup number of organizations now in the restoration branches movement. And they they frame themselves as traditional RLDS people. And the restorationists are willing to then see them in that way, even see them when they know evidence the contrary. That's not what's happening because it helps very small groups in the United States feel like they have this global reach. It makes them feel 
Well, honestly, the, one of the one of the reasons why RLDS feel powerful in the '60s in terms of as a group is like we have all these new members from across the world. We're a global community. That also works for very small religious communities that number in the thousands, restorationists, others in North America today too, with these global connections. So, I think there's a case to be made that these small, tiny groups compared to global Christianity are interesting to study in that way too, because all of these global, very small groups, Swedenborgian Church in the New Jerusalem, for instance, very small, has all these global churches too. Uh, a schism from that church, uh, a much more the, uh, the new church, has all kinds of global congregations in Eastern Europe and in Africa. I mean, these are interesting in themselves of like why these small churches want to have a global presence and why people from other places want to affiliate with them. That's a story which should be studied. And again, we should be careful about the kinds of, if we bring cynicism to that, I think we should be careful about that, of thinking about, well, what kinds of privileges do we bring, even studying them, these folks, and what kinds of privileges do we have in our lives? <laughs> so I I, I, I I want to catch myself. So I have to frame it in those terms of like, I can understand why people are affiliating. And I can understand why they are shaping themselves for a particular kind of patron. And I can understand the opposite too. Right? People feel can feel empowered by cosmopolitan connections. That's definitely happening across the world, not just among like smaller groups affiliated with the Restoration or the LDS Church or whatever. That's happening in global Christianity and this really complicated network of folks affiliated in some ways with the outgrowth of Protestant kinds of churches. We've been talking about uh, Community of Christ as a denomination, but I want to transition now to the to your entry in the World Religions and Spirituality Project website. This, this I understand, is the, the successor of the New Religious Movement's homepage that Jeffrey Haddon uh, used to curate. Uh, mm -hmm. It started in 1995. And I have to say that, you know, back in, in the mid-90s when this came out, uh, I went to this site quite often because it was one of the few, few reputable sites on the Internet that dealt with uh, New Religious Movements. And so my, my question is this, should Community of Christ, or more broadly, the, the Mormon Restoration Movement, Latter-day Saint Movement, should it be considered a denomination or a new religious movement? I think you could say it's both. It's for what, what purposes do you want to understand new religious movements as? And what do you consider denominations? I, I first of all, think that if you think about denomination in a classical kind of like so Ernst Trelsch is kind of, so creates the typology for denominations. And then um, H. Richard Niebuhr writes a book in the 20s, 30s, uh, that, that kind of furthers it one step further. Those classic, which are kind of later sociological definitions that other sociologists, notably Rodney Stark takes up this project and they, they kind of reuse these ideas of denominate church sect denomination. Uh, a church in this classic definition is the culture religion. It is the religion of the people in the place that is inseparable from politics, from society, from culture. And so classic idea of that is like the state church, but pre-Reformation Western Christianity before people even called themselves Catholics and Protestants. So denomination is a creation of the early modern period 
where you have freestanding groups who don't receive state support, who live or die by who they attract. And the denominational model becomes the dominant model in the United States, even when there's still state churches. So state churches exist in the U.S. until 1836, even though they're being phased out since at the time of the revolution, uh, they're all being phased out. But Massachusetts, where I live, is the holdout. <laughs> so Congregationalists are still the state church until 1836, but they're functionally their denomination by that point too as well. And then sect in this classic model is the group that breaks away from the denomination. The sect in this classic model, if the denomination has in some ways accommodated itself to the surrounding culture in some sense of not being at war with the culture, if you will, the sect is at war with the denomination, says the denominations accommodated too much. And this, this is an old sociological model about tension. Uh, state church, inseparable society, denomination, freestanding, but made peace with society. It's been defanged. It's not going to start a civil war. <laughs> Puritans, not the state church until they become the state church, right? <laughs> so uh, they started civil war. But then the sect is like uh, the denomination is corrupt. And we are going to reform it. And they are in high tension with the denomination. They're in high tension with society in general. So this church denomination sect model is a way of organizing classically groups. And do groups really fit any of these? Well, if we try to fit groups into these models, we miss the point of what these older scholars were trying to do in the first place. They were trying to construct ideal types. In ideal types, are ideal, they're not real. <laughs> they are useful ways of organizing material, but nothing meets them completely. And they're just, so that's the claim. It's a, a, a ideal types, it's an idea from Max Weber, another early sociologist of religion. So I think that you could call these groups denominations. I think sect has too much of a pejorative connotation to it to be used very helpfully, except in certain academics papers. But calling the new religious movements, if you want to look at things that have become, that go in strikingly new religious paths, yeah, it, the question though becomes, when does a new religious movement cease being new? If you think about Mormons as new religious movements, they're pretty old, <laughs> so they're not that new. So in comparison to things that are in the last 30 years or from the 1960s, ultimately, I think what it does is calling it a new religious movement or denomination is a question of who do you want to be your interlocutors as a scholar? There are certain scholars that study what they call new religious movements. Do you want those folks to be the people you're talking to and comparing stuff with? Or do you want people to study denominations? So the people that do so-called church history. You want those people to be your interlocutors? Maybe you want both for different purposes for, at different times. I think of it as you should be rather flexible, honestly, that you can learn something from people that study new religious movements uh, in that rubric of new religious movements who question the category itself, because those folks, of course, are questioning that category. You can learn things from people that do so-called church history too, by comparing your stuff with their stuff. There's no one way to do it, but for the right project, you have to think of, for your project, you think about who you want to be in conversation with. So I, I don't attach any kind of like theological judgment on whether we call something a new religious movement or something as a, as a denomination. But I think that's often implied. And I think that I'm fine with talking about community Christ as 
from a new religious movement or as a denomination. I think it could be talked about in both ways. It all depends upon the academic project and who I want to talk to. Okay. I've got a couple of questions now that I'll give you a chance to pass on if you want to. Okay. <laughs> so what would you say is the future of Community of Christ as a denomination, as a, a force in the world? When I think about the future of religions, I'm reminded that scholars that predict the future must do so with a lot of humility. So my uh, friend Jenna Reese, who does a lot of writing on Mormons, told me a story about being in a seminar in which the people in the seminar looked at materials from scholars in the 1970s about, and about predicting the future of religion in America. And she remembers reading an article by a scholar in the 70s about the 1970s will be the decade of the Lutherans. <laughs> and like you laugh at that, like <laughs> hardly, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I mean, this was a legitimate national scholar of religion, smart person making predictions, totally wrong. <laughs> so a lot of predictions about the future are gonna be wrong. Um, Are you so, saying in the 70s were not the decade of the Lutherans? No, no, they weren't. <laughs> so, I mean, the scholar had great reasons for that. Reese, I mean, all these trends reporting to it, why the Lutherans were poised to become, expand and become dominant and whatever, right? So I think that anything I could say, I've put some, put some caveats by and also take it as like, I, I could be really wrong, even in the short term. The big trend for religion in America everyone says right now is a downward trend. Like I, we can account for that for many factors. I almost conspiracy like terms attributed to neoliberalism. I have to stop doing that because it does sound like conspiracy <laughs> when you start saying neoliberalism about everything. Um, but I do think that as people see themselves more and more as consumers making choices, religion becomes less and less appealing. Um, so as a form of social solidarity, uh, as something that's not just about me. <laughs> so there's all kinds of reasons why religion becomes less appealing and that folks don't realize are happening to themselves when they they disaffiliate, for instance, from organized bodies. And that coupled with the idea that folks increasingly stereotype religion as something that's very conservative and associated with conservative politics, which is both true and not true. It's true in some cases, not true in all cases, right? But insofar as that becomes the feeling people have, and insofar as there are very, very loud voices proclaiming that they are the people that have trademarked Christianity and are very conservative, that means a dire future for all religion, not just conservative religion. That's the general trend that people have, are predicting at the moment and what people are seeing in the last 20 years. Um, so it's a downward trend. And Community Christ, of course, is experiencing that. All churches are, by the way, too. It's just about how they do their accounting in terms of membership, whether it's pretty accurate or not. And some aren't very accurate. So I think communities will see a downward trend. But I think about this question in terms of like, you can say, well, community Christ is dying. You know what? I'm dying too. <laughs> you know, so I will not live forever. You can say every day I'm dying. Okay, fine. I, I, I'm I'm one one more day closer to that time when I will die. I don't look at my life as a failure because I'm going to die. I don't think of my life as like I can do nothing because I'm going to die. It's just I'm just going to die. So I think that 
if we think about this and reframe it a little bit, organizations, by the way, <laughs> can limp along much longer than people can <laughs> So when their organs fail. So um, it's, it's really true. Uh, organizations have extraordinarily long life. <laughs> um, so I think the future of Community Christ is that, yes, it will get smaller. Um, Community Christ is right now the most progressive form of Christianity to emerge from Joseph Smith's 19th century movement. And that's its gift to the world. And as such, it's, it is still, it can be a place where people who are from a restoration tradition looking to not be affiliated with the conservative socio-political kinds of parts of, of the restoration tradition that are associated with very conservative Christianity, that are quite frankly associated with white supremacy in America. Folks that want to leave that, the community Christ is still an option in the same way that other churches stand in that way too as an option. So like folks who feel burned by the Roman Catholic Church have often gone to the Episcopal Church. So I think about the parish in my town that my wife's the rector of. Half of the folks are Roman Catholic uh, in background. So Community Christ can have the potential to be that place and has in the past had it seen a trickle of people who are LDS become part of it. A new PRII study just out this week says that fully 25% of the LDS people they polled know people, fully 25% of the people they polled are considering leaving the LDS church. They are the highest group in America with people considering leaving them. That should be, that's significant. Now, how big is their sample size? Maybe their sample size is a problem. I mean, these are polls. This is a, a statistically significant poll, but how significant is it? I'm not a statistician, but I know that's one of the kinds of takeaways from the PRI poll, which is like eyebrow raising. That sounds an awful lot to me like the situation that the Roman Catholic Church sees itself in today too, um, where it's like in the Northeast at least, they are hemorrhaging primarily white members in the Northeast like at a huge rate. And it's now, they're also losing then members from all groups, persons of color included from any of those groups in the Roman Catholic Church today. And primarily because of how folks then see the Roman Catholic Church as aligned with certain kinds of conservative causes that they don't necessarily agree with, which is, makes the Roman Catholic Church overall more conservative over time uh, in America. It becomes less of a big tent church, it becomes a smaller tent church, even if it's still a big organization. So the LDS Church is kind of facing that too, uh, becoming a smaller tent church with a more conservative American base as more Gen Z folks are just saying, I can't do this. So, and older too. Community Christ could potentially have some of those folks come into Community Christ. The challenge for Community Christ though will be, will there be places where people can do that? So the advantage like for instance, the Episcopal Church has over the Community Christ is that the Episcopal Church has a lot more places where people who are Roman Catholic and they're looking for something, they say, oh, the Episcopal Church in town, they can go to it, every town has one. The Episcopal Church, too, because of its long history, 
of wealth and wealth inequality that goes along with it has a lot more resources. So that there's a legacy, it's all mixed up in neocolonialism. It, it, of course it is, of course it is. Um, and if it's in America, it's the history of slavery. And that goes back to wealth. All churches that are wealthy somehow are mixed up in that. The LDS church is wealthy because it once was an empire. Um, so the community crisis is poor because it wasn't an empire. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, it's th th that's part of it. Um, but I think going back to your original question, the community crisis is positioned to be the most progressive and is the most progressive option uh, in the Royal Family Restoration Churches. And that does matter. And is positioned in the future to be a place for people to come to who could. Will that happen? I think to a lesser degree than it will happen in the Episcopal Church. But it will happen, and it has happened. Will it still be a shrinking membership base? Of course it will. Um, again, it's like I go back to the analogy of like I'm I'm one day closer to death every day. So is the community Christ. So what? <laughs> it's like they can still do things in the world. They still will have a kind of function, if you will, in the American religious landscape. And theologically, you know, if you look at it from I am community Christ, so I do think of it theologically. It's not the worst thing in the world to um, it, to be shrinking and doing good in the world. And, and what's wrong with that? So there I come out theologically. Obviously, I am a fan of the community of Christ. I'm a member. Um, but I, and I like what they do theologically. So, yeah. But my scholar, Capon, yeah, they're shrinking. Um, they all have they have massive problems with the resources. And that's not always a bad thing, the fact that you have massive problems with resources. Where did you get the resources in the first place? <laughs> well, they have fewer unjust resources to, <laughs> to, to redistribute, I think, in that way. So that's not necessarily bad either. David, if people want to get in touch with you, how, how can they do that? Uh, if folks want to send me an email, my email address is d-h-o-w-l-e-t-t -T at smith, s-m-i-t-h dot e-d-u. And no, it's not Joseph Smith. It was Sophia Smith, different Smith, not related. <laughs> so smith.edu. And I, yes, I, I, I do have a toddler. So I'll, I'll try to get back to people if they write to me, <laughs> but I do have a toddler. So sometimes, as Jason knows, me getting back to you may take a, a few weeks. <laughs> and you have an amazingly beautiful and wonderful daughter. I, I love seeing pictures of her on Facebook. She's a good one. So, and I, right after this interview, I'm going to pick her up from daycare. <laughs> okay. Well, David, thank you for joining us today. We'll be in touch. Happy to be here and happy, ha always happy to talk with you, Jason. We want to thank you for tuning in to the Whitmer cast. John Whitmer Historical Association is an educational nonprofit institution. For more information, visit www.jwha.info, where you can meet our team and join the association, read past issues of the JWHA Journal, and get updates on upcoming conferences and events. Our theme music is I Love to Tell the Story, composed by Tom Moraine. This podcast is a production of John Whitmer Historical Association, all rights reserved.